Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fueling Curiosity podcast. I'm your host, Michael Aldo. This show aims to provide clarity on the path successful individuals have taken to become top performers in their respective fields. Join me as we discover the frameworks, strategies, and tactics our guests have used to guide them through their careers. Today's guest is City Councilor Verdun, Sterling Downey. Now, I'm sure you already have an idea about how most politicians look like and what their academic backgrounds are. But Sterling, he isn't your typical municipal politician. He stands six foot four inches tall, has tattoos, is a passionate skateboarder, and organizes an annual international graffiti convention. Sterling's background is unique, which is what makes him so special. He listens to the voices of citizens and wants to make a difference to have a positive impact on his borough and those around him. I like to think his iconic white beard symbolizes the wisdom he has accumulated over the years. His unique life experiences have led him to where he is today. On top of being elected as a city councilor of Verdun, he was also appointed as the deputy mayor of the city of Montreal. Thank you, Sterling, for joining us today. I can't wait to hear your story. Let's start off with how you grew up and what your early life was like. Most people know my, my, I guess I, I call it my origin story, right? It's, it's if I was a Marvel, a Marvel or a DC character, this would be my origin story. But um, so I'm born and raised in Verdun. I grew up in the, in the same house that I live in today. Uh, I've lived here my whole life for 48 years of my life. I've never moved, never had a different civic address. Um, it was my grandparents, uh, my grandmother's house after the Second World War. My grandfather and my father were both Second World War veterans. So my grandmother got this house to raise her family in. Um, when she uh, became uh, older and a little bit more uh, ill, I guess you could say, and couldn't, uh, didn't have her autonomy, my parents came in to take care of her and help her. Uh, I was born into the house. My grandmother passed away. My parents kept the house. Unfortunately, I lost my parents at a young age. I was 24 when I lost my father, 25 when I lost my mother. Um, and I decided to keep the house and stay in the house, which was a great decision. Um, and then now, uh, four, well, three and a half years ago, I had a son. So he's born into the house. So four generations. Uh, but what's fun about, you know, a little bit about, about that is that I, you know, I literally, I went to elementary school here. I went to high school here. I played, uh, uh, you know, hockey here, soccer here, baseball, um, all the trouble I got into, I got into here when I was a kid, um, all of my friends that I grew up with were here. And uh, as an Anglophone, I guess you could say, as an, as an Anglophone Quebecer, what was interesting is uh, my neighborhood is very mixed. It's English and French, which is nice. I went to French Immersion Elementary School. Never really used my, never really used my French because my friends were all English that I went to school with. But because of skateboard culture and because of other things, I made other friends that were involved in the same sport because it was very counterculture at the time. It wasn't as popular as it is today, obviously. And... Um, because of that, I had some French friends, English friends. We used our different languages. We practiced, and uh, you know that basically taught me my French language uh, to the to the point where I have it today, where I'm perfectly and fluently bilingual. Um, that upbringing, though, was a little tough as I grew up because I was uh, I was a type of kid that was very uh, introverted. I was very shy. Uh, I'm a very big guy, so I grew really fast when I was young. I didn't really fit in anywhere. I was kind of goofy. Uh, you know, clothes didn't fit me properly. A whole bunch of things, you know, going through in life. And in elementary school, I was um, I was bullied a lot and I was tormented a lot and uh, went through a lot of uh, rough times. wasn't always the best uh, stuff, which led me to become a, an even more insecure 
um, individual, insecure in terms of how I looked, insecure in my with my with my own identity and a whole bunch of things. And um, unfortunately, that resulted in when I went into high school. Um, because I was afraid and I was insecure and everything. And I grew up in a small community. So the same people that bullied me in elementary school basically were in the high school that I went to as well. So it kind of continued. I ended up joining, uh, you know, getting involved in some gangs and street gangs that were very serious at a very young age and, uh, did it to protect myself and to try to, you know, make sure that no one would bother me. And, um, it was a very difficult time in my life. It was a couple of years of my life, you know, not, not long, but when you're a teenager, two years is, is an eternity. Basically, it feels like it even today when I reflect on it, it feels like I was involved in things for so long, but it was such a short period of time. And um, luckily, I was never, it never sat well with me to be involved in those things. And I wasn't comfortable with the ideologies or the, the mentalities of the people that I had associated with. And I managed to get away from it. And uh, what was interesting is by the time I finished, I struggled to finish high school and I, and I finished, I started to do um, youth intervention work in Verdun and LaSalle um, with younger people. But I was only 19. I was like, you know, maybe 19 years old, never went to CJEP, didn't go to university, obviously. But because of the stuff that I experienced growing up, I wanted to make sure that kids that were just a little bit younger than me, even if it was just two or three years younger than me, didn't fall victim to the same type of bullying, the same type of influence, didn't uh, feel that they had to be something that they weren't, uh, that they were not, or didn't have to associate with things. Um, and that's it. I started to do like gang intervention work, I guess you could say, or like youth intervention work informally. And people um, always, I don't know, I guess I, I was lucky. People listened to me for some reason. I guess I had you know, like I, I say this like very, uh, very humbly, but um, with a lot of humility, actually. But it, it, people just seem to 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 follow a little bit and, and listen what I would what I would say. So I wanted to do something good with that, and and you know, I just wanted to look out for the kids in my community or the people in my community. And when I saw people being bullied or things like that, I would stand up for them because I became a lot more confident at nineteen when I got out of gangs. I found my own self confidence. I had to stand up for myself. I didn't need other people to defend me. And it really helped me defend other people and, and do it in a respectful, intelligent way, diffuse situations rather than make them worse. And I continued throughout my 20s and all that to you know search for my own identity and everything. As, as a lot of people know, I was involved in graffiti culture for about um, a good, uh, I don't know, we'll say uh, 20, 25 years. So I was a, I was a very active uh, uh, graffiti vandal graffiti writer, uh, founded, you know, the Under Pressure Graffiti Festival and, and, you know, worked in a lot of other things. Like there's so much stuff that happened in my, in my youth, you know, got, I was into hip hop culture when I was like 12, 13 years old and, you know, break dancing and, you know, emceeing and all that stuff. But that was, you know, you're 12, 13 years old. That's just, it's, it's kind of like a movie playing out in your head. I, and that's literally what it was. I saw a movie on hip hop, wanted to get involved in it dabbled with it a little bit and then a summer later I was into skateboarding and then skateboarding got me into punk rock culture and then you know from hip-hop I got into punk rock and and then punk rock got me into hardcore and it got me into other things and then kind of spun full around and when I got out of all the street gangs and the stuff I was in I got into you know heavy metal and, and death metal music and different things like that played in bands you know so skateboarding bands punk rock hip-hop all of that stuff was a part of my my youth and it all helped shape me and looking back on it today, I always say that I was never really political, but I was an activist, right? So activists are 
by default political, which I didn't really, I just don't, didn't see political culture as being a part of it. I was just politicized, I guess you could say, to a certain degree. And uh, again, because of my leadership, I guess, qualities that I had or that people listened to, I realized that my voice carried weight. So my opinions, people had influenced them. So I was, I, I learned at a very young age to be very careful with, with the stuff that I did and even in graffiti culture, right? Like people, because of under pressure, the festival, which has been going on, it just celebrated its 26th anniversary this, this month and in, in the last couple of weeks. Um, it's an international event. People from all over the world come and follow this. So my life has been, and even today in politics is, has always been about understanding the importance and, and, and the power of what you say and uh, the responsibility that comes with it and what you can do. So, you know, going back to the origin story joke, I guess you could say is that with great power comes great responsibility. I find it absolutely fascinating, a tremendous story with so many valuable lessons throughout your different chapters. It's interesting to hear how your past shaped who you are today. Now, I want to dive a bit deeper into your career. I noticed that you have six different titles. Can you give us an introduction as to what those titles are and briefly describe them? Well, I have a bunch of different titles, so let me see. Let's see which ones we're talking about. I mean, I have, um, I have, I'm, 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 when you're involved, when you're, when you're elected, you get nominated to different commissions and different committees and different, different things. So I've been really lucky in, 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 the, in my first mandate from 2013 to 2017, when I was first elected, I was elected into opposition, right? So I was, uh, we weren't a majority. We were we were the opposition at City Hall, and I was given two very uh, very interesting responsibilities at that point, which shaped where I am today. So that's what we'll get to. But it's so I was the official spokesperson for the opposition on homelessness, and I was the official spokesperson for the home, uh, for for the opposition on animal welfare. So all uh, you know, all all animal related issues in the island, and. Um, I also had some really good files. Like I was involved in obviously like youth, 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 youth stuff. And I was involved in, you know, alternative sports stuff because of my, you know, my background in skateboarding and other things too. So today, uh, when we got elected in 2017, I, uh, we were elected into power, obviously with the mayor, uh, Valerie Plant, who's, who's the mayor of Montreal. And, um, the first, uh, title, which is no longer on my titles that you see, but my first, uh, my first big responsibility was I was nominated as vice speaker of the house at city hall. So that was my first thing. I'm no longer vice speaker of the house. I, 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 uh, I had that responsibility for two years. And then when uh, Kathy Wong uh, joined, uh, our political party, she was the speaker of the house. And when she joined our party, we couldn't have two members of the same party, uh, holding the speaker positions at the house because it's, it's you know, normally you reserve one for the opposition. Um, so I, I was, I then stepped down from that position. Um, but what was interesting is the mayor, uh, before that had also nominated me with a really great honor and a really great privilege, which was deputy mayor of the city of Montreal. So that's one of my titles, which is, uh, primarily for the most part, a, um, a ceremonial, I guess you could say in a way position. It's not like I sit down in meetings with the mayor all day long and I have briefings on everything. But what happens is I do speak on behalf of the mayor frequently. So uh, the mayor obviously can't be in 50 places at once. And she has different members of the executive committee and that who will speak and go to events or, or, or meet with people and speak to very specific subjects and titles or, or um, topics, I should say. 
And in my case, I'll go to a lot of ceremonies and a lot of a lot of things to represent the mayor's office and the mayor's cabinet. So, uh, so it's really interesting. I meet a lot of interesting people. I get to uh, to be at a lot of interesting events when I do it. And and what's interesting about that role and in the past, it's not a role that a lot of people talk about. Like you have to have a deputy mayor uh, legally because. If ever the mayor is not able to complete her functions, then the deputy mayor actually does come into play. So if something was to happen, like the mayor was to actually resign, I would actually become the mayor temporarily. And then what would happen is at City Hall, the council would vote uh, who they would want as an interim mayor. So I would be the mayor temporarily until that vote passes. So it could take a month. It could take two months, depending on the time it takes for an agreement. And then they would nominate a, a new mayor. But I would, I would actually be the mayor temporarily. And I would have all of the, uh, for the most part, all of the powers that the mayor has. Um, so that's kind of an interesting aspect to the role because, you know, there's always the fear that, oh, God forbid that I actually have to take on that responsibility with no briefing or no you know, I don't have all the information that the mayor has. So that's, 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 that's the, the, the first title that's really kind of interesting. Now, obviously, before that, I'm, I'm a city councillor. And that, that's, you know, the most probably important thing first, because I'm elected in Verdun. So I'm city councillor for Verdun in the district of Demarcia Crawford, where I live, um, which entitles me to sit at Borough Hall and City Hall. As you know, I sit in both council sessions. And, um, Due to that title, I can also sit on different commissions and different things that 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 are at City Hall. So I also am a member of the uh, the agglomeration council. So the agglomeration which uh, assemble which which uh, brings together basically all of the um, uh, what's the word in English? All of the the villiers. It's all of the um, the external uh, cities that are on the island. So uh, for example. Uh, Westmount, Cote Saint Luc, uh, TMR, Dorval, Point Claire, um, uh, uh, Bay Durfee, all of these, all of these cities, and and there are other ones, Montreal West, and, and things like that, Montreal East. They all contribute financially to the budget of the city of Montreal, right? Because they share services, whether it's transportation, uh, water infrastructure, and everything. So that council allows them a moment for them to. Um, comment on files uh, or vote on files that affect them because those files, the aglo files are actually voted prior at the city council sessions at city hall. So we make the decision in the end and then it goes to the other council so that they legally get, get a say. So that's a really nice responsibility too, because you also learn about um, you learn about the problems or the issues that the other cities around you that aren't actually a part of the city of Montreal are facing and it can give you a different perspective on, on, on issues that are going on, like a homelessness, for example. You know, when, when we target and focus um, issues to help our vulnerable population or our homeless population, well, you know, you don't really think about, well, what's Westmount doing about it? You know, well, what do they do? Do they have a homelessness problem? Well, they're right in between NDG and Ville Marie, so clearly they do. But how do they approach it? Because they don't necessarily subscribe to the same programs that Montreal does because they're not a part of Montreal. So they kind of, they're left to do their own thing. So that's an interesting thing about the Aglo. After that, I'm a member of a great commission that I've been a member of for eight years, which is the commission, uh, the commission on social development and Montreal diversity. And that's a great commission, which targets uh, a lot of issues, uh, 
I mean, a, a, a plethora of issues on, on so many subjects. Um, but it's really, a, you know, a lot of community-based organizations, community-based issues, um, you know, racial and social profiling, uh, you know, uh, uh, what else? Uh, for example, uh, food security, uh, you know, just tons of great issues like that. So it, it's a really great commission. I really love the work on there. I'm also a member of the commission of the, uh, the, uh, the president of the council. So because I was vice president of council and like vice speaker of the house, I have a seat at that commission and that's all that commission focuses primarily on the, the, um, all of the work that happens in council, the protocol, how it goes on, um, issues of civic engagement and democracy and, uh, how we see that and how we make it more accessible. How do we bring in more people to uh, City Hall, which is the house of the citizens, right? So how do you get people engaged? I get to work with great organizations like Concertation uh, Montréal with that. I get to work on things with, uh, with, um, with, uh, geez, uh, uh, Le Conseil Jeunesse and, and, you know, Le Conseil des Femmes. Uh, like, so there's a whole bunch of different, uh, different committees that also fall under us and that are our responsibility. So that's, that's really interesting. We analyze their reports and, and look at how we can do things better. And then the last one, I guess that I'm on is the, I'm a member of the CMM, which is the Communauté Metropolitaine de Montréal. And that is an interesting one because like the Aglo goes to the cities that we named that are close, but the Communauté Metropolitaine, it goes bigger. It's every municipality. So all the South Shore, it, can, it goes all the way to everyone that's in the Couronne, uh, Couronne Nord or whatever it is uh, of, of uh, La Couronne uh, around, around Montreal. So, you know, St. Sever, St. Jerome, uh, all of the mayors from all of those cities are all at the table. So when there's issues like the flooding that happened years ago, well, those are files that we focus on on the CMN. So like all of les zones inondables, like that's something that's a big file for the CMM. Uh, transportation is a big file for the CMN, CMM. That, that's a big thing. So all of, uh, you know, active transportation and everything, the REM, the REM will be a, a CMM file because it affects all of those municipalities and those cities. And then things uh, like environment, there'll be environmental issues because environment affects us all. So that's pretty much, that's a very long winded answer of all of those things there, but uh <laughs> That's, those are, those are some of the things that I get to, uh, to deal with. And then I have my local in Verdun, I have my local committees and commissions that I sit on as well. But like I sit on a committee in, in Verdun for homelessness and a couple of other things, uh, parks and buildings, as well as, uh, sports and leisure. So yeah, just a lot of, a lot of meetings, basically a lot of meetings. If you want to get into politics, get ready to do a lot of, a lot of meetings. That segues perfectly into what I wanted to ask you next. What does your day-to-day look like? Considering you have six titles and different positions, is the majority of your day full of meetings and conversations with fellow politicians or citizens? How does that actually look like? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, it, it, it's changed a lot because of COVID, right? But before COVID, we'll say pre-COVID, um, a lot of it was meetings in person. So it's, it's, it's fun because you meet, you know, meeting somebody face-to-face and working with a colleague face-to-face is very different than doing it on a computer screen, obviously, because it's not personal or it's, it's not as interpersonal. Um, so our days used, used to consist of, obviously, I have to sit in all the council sessions. So when we actually have council, we have, you know, borough council once a month. So you have to sit in that, which will take about, you know, it'll be the first Tuesday of every month. It'll be about four or five hours long. It's at night normally from about 6, 6, 6.30 to about 11 o'clock. 
Um, so that'll be that council session. And then there's all the prep meetings before that, right? Because you have to go through the files. Your services will brief you on all the files. You'll have an opportunity to question it, make adjustments, make amendments, uh, have files pulled or have files added to the the uh, the l'ordre du jour and everything. So so there's a lot of there's a lot of preparation and a lot of meetings because you have to you have to be able to ask the questions like. You know, contrary to what people think, because they don't see a lot of the work that happens behind closed doors, but we're not just going in there rubber stamping. And I mean, I know a lot of people can see, think that because of what they see, because they only see the council session and they may not see active debates happen in council. Sometimes there are if it's a heated subject, because if we're voting against something, normally we'll explain our dissidents or our vote against, or sometimes we'll explain why we're voting for if it's a contentious thing. So, but it's not always a debate, and those debates normally happen in those meetings that are in preparation before, and that's how we come to a consensus as a council in the borough. We do similar things um, at the city council, but the city council preparations are even bigger because you're looking at 6,000 pages of files, um, all of those documents and all of, the, or, all of the points that are on the docket for the order of the day are divided amongst the councillors based on their... their uh, their 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 specialties or their files that they hold and then it's our jobs to go through everything and look at everything and and bring things to the attention of our of our colleagues make sure it's addressed make sure there's modifications done and then uh come up with a strategy of how we're going to approach council as an administration when you're in the administrative power because a lot of the decisions are you're already in control of the decisions and the orientations of, of what's being decided there's less of that conversation on our side. The opposition would have more of those kinds of meetings amongst themselves. And that's what we did a lot when we were in opposition. But because the executive committee basically gives the civil servants the orientations of the files, we already know the content of the files because we're the ones directing them, right? So, so there's not really uh, a reason to debate them because we've already kind of made the decision. This is our position and this is where we want to go with it. However, We'll have our caucus meetings with our with our caucus because there could be some elected officials that disagree or think that things can be done better, or because they'll there'll be files that affect, like say, my borough, for example. Well, I might want to say something about it because I might bring a different perspective to my colleagues at City Hall who are making a decision for Verdun, but that don't actually live here. So it's important to have those discussions. So there's a lot of meetings, a lot of preparation meetings. And then like the commissions, those are commission meetings. They normally last, you know, about three hours. Each commission meeting will have presentations from different experts, services uh, to brief us on, on an issue that we might be uh, preparing recommendations for. And, and commission work is a lot of that. It's preparing recommendations to give to the executive committee at City Hall and the mayor's cabinet and to make sure that they have the proper orientations to make a final decision. And then they pick and choose what recommendations they want to keep in their own discussions. And then they'll come back with an answer from the executive committee to the file and, and say, well, here's how we're going to approach this file now. So a lot of our work is, is, is meetings that for the most part, what I, as a person, um, what's really important to me is I really, it's not, I don't want to say I don't like meetings, but meetings are important obviously because that's where you get your information. And, and, you know, I, I prefer to have a conversation and exchange. That's how I learn. And that's how I do my best work. I'm not a big reader. I don't like to read things that are common. I like to, to discuss them and listen to people and, and hear their opinions and ask questions. That's really the way I learn. And that's the way I do the, my best work. So, so meetings can become very, um, 
very heavy in terms of like doing it, especially now, you know, in the COVID pandemic, you know, sitting and doing that for three hours on the computer screen is tough. And, you know, then, you know, the, the city council meetings are two, over two days, you know, we'll start at one o'clock on a Monday, we finish at 10 o'clock at night. So that's a long day. And then you go back at nine 30 in the morning the next day, and it can go till seven at night. So those are two very long days, but I mean, we're, we're voting millions and millions of dollars of files, making huge decisions. So it's important that there's a place for that conversation and that debate to happen and for the opposition to say what they have to say on the files and give their orientations and for us to explain why we're taking the position that we're, we're taking on things. So it's an important democratic process because there has to be a conversation. There has to be a conversation. When you have, you know, 6,000 pages of files to go through, well, it's a long many conversations and long conversations so so it's it's healthy but it's definitely arduous in, in terms of like the amount of time it takes and the energy it's kind of like a marathon and the commission meetings are the same thing we'll work on something and it'll be over a couple you know it'll be over a number of months that we'll work on things so we'll meet maybe once or a couple of times a month all the meetings in the borough the caucus meetings in the borough the uh, the that style that we call which is when we meet with our services and our directors of our different services permits and sports and leisure and all of that to to give us orientations on files because we need as much information as possible before we, we take decisions. I'm not an engineer. I'm not an urban planner. Um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a citizen elect, you know, and that's very important for me to use that term. I'm an elected official. I mean, that's the term, but I'm a citizen elect. I am the same and equal to my neighbors and the residents that I represent. Therefore, I'm not necessarily an expert on anything. But like anyone else, I can learn. And as long as I'm in the meetings and I'm, I'm at, at the table for the conversation, then I can ask questions and I can make sure that things are being brought to the attention of my services and being taken into consideration. So a lot of it is that. Perfect. I did want to go into the files and projects that you've worked on. Are there any that stand out or that you're very proud of? You know, it's, it's, it's hard because there's so much stuff that goes on and you know, I've worked on a lot and, you know, it's, it's, it would be, it would be wrong. I think for me to ever, or any counselor for that matter, to ever take credit for anything specifically because we work in groups and, and a lot of people have a lot of says. So you, you may bring forward a specific project or a file. It may be something that you fight to have prioritized. So that would be your role in terms of your file. But then because of the de democratic process, your colleagues all have a say in it. So the end product is, is, is a culmination of a lot of people's opinions and a lot of people's input. So you, you can only really take credit for having pushed for it to be a priority or for it being pushed to be part of the, a, a discussion. So, yeah, there are files that for me are important, like, uh, you know, in Verdun, uh, you know, in 2014, um, you know, I've been skateboarding for, for, you know, 30 years of my life and a lot of, uh, the stuff that's happened, uh, you know, in, 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 since I was a teenager, uh, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, there, there's been no investments in skateboard infrastructure and sports infrastructure because it was always considered a hobby or was never considered a serious sport. Obviously today with the Olympics and all that, we see a huge shift in that with the X games and everything. We saw a huge shift years ago. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. People like Tony Hawk, obviously that I grew up idolizing is only a couple of years older than me like these are the people that have clearly proven that that this is a viable 
um, sport and entity and people have made their livings. I mean, at 14, you can make millions of dollars in endorsements and sponsorships. So it should be taken as seriously as, as acting or anything else or, or music culture where young people can become stars or professional athletes or whatever at a very young age. So it's not, it's not just about a little wooden, wooden plank with four wheels to it. Um, but one of the things that happened in Montreal is there was always, because the approach was always that it was recreational or leisurely, um, the infrastructure, the sports infrastructure, skate parks, for example, there was never any serious amounts of money being invested in that. So the approach, um, when we approach uh, building a soccer field or an arena or an aquatic center or something, I mean, you're talking about millions and millions of dollars, obviously. But when you were building a skate park, you were talking about like two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars, and it's for me that never made sense because i knew where that sport was i knew where it was going i worked in the industry before i was in politics i saw the potential but it's hard to get athletes uh, at, a, at a at a at a world class level to compete if there's nowhere for them to train so when you would look at you know professional skateboarders like some like you know tony hawk like i named and all that you know these people all live in california and in, you go to california there's huge skate parks and BMX parks in all of these towns and all of these cities because surf culture, skateboarding, and all that has been around since the 1950s and 60s. Uh, so the investments are there. Here, it was completely uh, contrary to that. So on, in 2014, 20, 20, 2014, I managed to convince the borough of Verdun to make a major investment into a skate park. So instead of investing 200,000, they invested 700,000. Um, we split it into a into a first phase because it, for me, that wasn't a substantial enough amount of money and we had to do another phase, which we're working on now. So by the end of it, the project, the skate park will cost about $1.2 million. And that's a, 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 a sizable uh, investment to building something that is of quality and that can actually uh, propel a future generation of athletes into professional into the professional world. And what was interesting is nobody else in Montreal in the 19 boroughs wanted to make those kinds of investments because they all had the same approach. But when they saw the success of Verdun, I was able to convince my colleagues and other boroughs to build these huge skate parks. So, you know, the Plateau built a big one, uh, you know, uh, Rosemount built a, a huge one, but everyone started to invest like 700,000 to a million dollars into their skate parks. And we started to finally get real skate parks. So that was one of the causes that I championed that I'm proud of. But again, like I said, a lot of my colleagues, it was just about bringing this to their attention, showing them the potential and, and uh, what was possible, I guess you could say. And, and they did it. So, so that's, that's a success. Um, I also, you know, I was lucky enough to, uh, it was funny, people were getting tickets still and still do to the, today get tickets for skateboarding on the street. So like, say you wanted to go to school on your, on your skateboard or a longboard or whatever, technically you get a ticket because you weren't allowed to use it on the street. It's, it's not a recognized uh, a mode of transportation, I guess you can say, by the Minister of Transport of Quebec. And um, at City Hall, I managed to pass a motion early on in my first mandate in the opposition to have skateboards recognized as a mode of active transportation. So, you know, we talk about, um, you know, environmental issues, reducing the amount of cars on roads for emissions and things like that. And obviously we talk about bikes all the time. Everyone talks about cycling because that is the go-to uh, mode of, of uh, active transportation, I guess you could say, in most major cities and all that. But 
there's so many other forms of transportation. There's skateboards, like I said. There, there's, there's scooters now for younger kids going to elementary school with their parents. Not everyone necessarily wants the bike. So because of that, um, I was able to have skateboarding recognized and uh, uh, therefore have it allowed on, again, what I still have a problem with, what we call bike paths. And um, so now on a bike path, you're allowed to use your skateboard. But my next big fight, and I've been fighting for years, and I'm, I'm hopefully one day going to have a change, is that bike paths will no longer be called bike paths. Bike paths will be called active transportation lanes. And by having them as an active transportation lane, we will have to allow all modes of active transportation on there. And, and you get to choose the mode of transportation that suits you. And we're seeing all different kinds of things now, electric skateboards, we're seeing those one wheel electric things. There's, there's so many different things going. There's gonna be a cohabitation issue that's gonna exist because obviously cyclists are used to having their own space and cyclists for me are gonna become the new car, the, the new drivers, right? They're gonna, you know, right now you have car, you know, you have drivers like me who might complain about cyclists on the road and sharing the road with cyclists. But what I see in the future is you're gonna have cyclists now complaining about sharing the active transportation lane with other modes of transportation. So it's, it's kind of ironic. It's, it's, it's interesting, but I, I see that as being the future of an art, like the argument that's going to come, you know, those are some, some of the files in terms of, I think that had, um, that had a big impact on, on people, youth, as well as adults that I was involved in and the homelessness file too, that I've been involved in where, you know, making sure homeless shelters, uh, people with animals would have access to homeless shelters because before you couldn't go into a shelter at night if you had a dog, if you were homeless. Now shelters, we've worked on it with the different organizations, the different groups. And again, it's a collective, it's a collective uh, success, I guess you could say, or we all worked on it collectively. But that was a big issue that we brought forward. And uh, now if you're homeless and have an animal, you can still stay at an overnight shelter. So that's a huge deal too, because a lot of people were forced to stay on the streets in the middle of the winter because they had an animal because they're not going to leave their animal somewhere if they can't, it's, you know, it's your, it's your family member, it's your companion. So there was that. So, so issues like that. And also I've been very involved in veterans affairs. So with the military, with our veterans, uh, you know, to name, to name some things. So in supporting our veterans who are our citizens who, you know, come to our help and aid to civil powers, like the flooding. Uh, they were there, you know, the military and our, who are our reservists, who are your, you know, your and my neighbors who live next door to us, who hold down full-time jobs, but also are part-time reservists, went out and, you know, saved people's homes and sandbagged and rescued people. They were there in the ice storm, you know, back in the 90s to, to, to free up the city, restore communications and electricity and everything throughout the city. Um, they've been there for the forest fires. They were there during the COVID pandemic on the front lines in our long-term care facilities helping. So, you know, I, for me, it's very important coming from a family where my father served in the second world war, my nephews in the reserves. Uh, it's very important for me to, again, encourage and support these efforts of our frontline workers, including our, our, our fire and our police services and, and, you know, our ambulance services and all that, because these people are uh, doing a, a job that is exceptional um, all day long and they're taking risks and their risks, you know, their families don't know if they're coming home in some cases and, 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 and stuff like that. So I think it's important to recognize them and it's not in any way, um, glorifying, uh, 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 engaged or armed conflict in 
foreign countries, although sometimes it's necessary when we see things that are going on where, you know, we have to go and defend people that are under, you know, a dictatorship or something and try to help them. But it's, it's, mo it's, it's more to show that the Canadian armed forces or the Canadian forces and the Navy and everything are here to help locally and domestically. So that's another thing that I'm very proud to be very actively involved in. And then, you know, obviously as an Anglophone, I'm involved in other things like the Scottish societies, the Irish societies and different societies. So, you know, I have all of those things too, the Highland games, uh, you know, I run around in my kilt and do my thing and, you know, the Irish societies and all that. So it's just, it's, it's a lot of community-based stuff. So I find it very interesting how you're so passionate about these topics that you've decided to pursue trying to provide better legislation for the citizens. And so I wanted to ask you a bit about your skill set. As we've already heard, you're bilingual, both in English and French, which is a huge asset during your meetings, simply because some of the politicians, as well as citizens, may be Anglophone, while others may be Francophone. Clearly, you're an excellent speaker and a great storyteller. So I want to ask you about networking. Do you find that it plays a large role in your current position? Yeah, networking is extremely important. That's a really good question that you're asking. because, and, and that's where language and communication comes in, right? Because if you only speak one language, then you're only networking in one community. So it's very important. I mean, I, I'm, I am extremely proud of the fact that I, you know, I'm very lucky. I consider myself extremely privileged to have the opportunity to have learned a second language, living in Quebec, being immersed in, in French. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's when you're younger, it, it, it's very easy to be insecure and to, you know, to, to feel very shy because you feel that you're mispronouncing things. You don't understand a conversation. Communication is everything in, in the world, right? When, when we don't understand something, this is where prejudice, racism, all of these things come from is because there's a lack of understanding of a different language or a culture. And we feel this anxiety and then it, it creates us to build these walls. And then we, have these separations between us and other people based on religion, language, all of these different things, race. Uh, and, and it's really a shame because as, as, as a multi-diverse, multi-ethnic uh, city, I guess you could say, a very culturally diverse city, we have so much we can learn from one another and share. You know, I grew up my whole life with you know, English, French, Italian, Greek, Indian, you, know, you name it. Like, I mean, in between Verdun and La Salle and everything, like there's just so much cultural diversity that you can't really escape it. You know, the West Indian community, everything. So it's like you kind of learned about everything and, you, you know, it wasn't just about you. You weren't just stuck in your little bubble with your, you know, I'll say for argument's sake, like the wasp, like, like white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, which I would be neighborhood and i just didn't grow up with the irish community or something like i mean you know i was i was involved in the west indian community i was involved in the greek and italian community i had friends all over the place you know in the in the indian community the sikh community and all of the, like you know first nations you know being close to the ganawagi and all, Kanawagi and all that it's like all of that exposes you to different things, which creates a huge network of people because then you're networking into different communities and speaking the two languages of Quebec is super important. So, you know, my files, I take them all in French because, because I'm lucky enough to be able to read and write in French because I learned it at a young age, which I encourage everyone to do. Obviously, I can, I can look at my files. The more I read and the more I, 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 the more I read in French, well, the more my vocabulary becomes more extensive. 
because I'm reading and learning words. I'm in, actively involved in debates and discussions, and I learn new words every single day and how to use them in a conversation, how to use them in a specific context. There's technical terms because I'm evaluating files on engineering, urban planning, all these things that it would never be a part of a discussion if I wasn't in politics. So networking and communication and language become a really huge aspect of this. Like I said earlier, right? I have a high school education. That's as far as I decided to go personally. Obviously, I have an enormous amount of life experience and I recognize that. And, you know, I recognize that life experience sometimes can have a lot more value than, 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 than schooling, depending on who you are as a person and how you learn and, and, and how, what's better for you. Like some people, school is really great for them and some people, other, they need to take another avenue like me. But the more you, you, I guess you have to kind of claw your way or fight your way to something or find your confidence. It helps you as a person, you know, you said, I'm a good public speaker. I'm a good talker, you know, a storyteller, but I'm an introvert. Like I, in school, I, I wouldn't stand up in front of a class and read out loud. I didn't like that. Cause I, it made me very nervous. Now I can stand in front of 3000 people or 10,000 people, read a speech or do something. And it's okay because I learned how to just be me. I'm just me. I'm not trying to be somebody else. I'm being myself. It's sterling. So it seems that this this skill set was very intentional. You were always working on it. It wasn't necessarily that it came to you naturally. You were constantly improving with intention to get better. Uh, I don't know if it was with intention. I mean, maybe, but I don't think it was with intention. With awareness, not necessarily with intention, with awareness, with a lot of self, um, what is it, introspect, I guess? Like a lot of self-introspect, a lot of self-analysis, like real being aware of my my insecurities my weakness well you know i don't even want to say my weakness being aware of my insecurities or the things that made me uncomfortable and nervous and wanting to to kind of better myself and you know it starts with again like i said you know being able to influence two or three people and and work with youth or whatever adults talking to them and then you know going into graffiti culture and then speaking for the community doing interviews with the media and french and english and being comfortable with a certain subject and being very, very um, informed on a specific subject, or being a, a uh, an advocate or a leader in a certain subject, I mean, or an expert, I guess you could say. I mean, that gives you confidence because you're the expert. So when you're speaking to it, people want to hear your opinion. So that builds. So it's like a gradual build. It's self confidence. It's it's introspection. It's practice. Um, it's 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 self self analyzing, looking back, saying like you know. How did I get here? You know, how did I go from the kid who was afraid to read in class or speak in an auditorium and be shy on stage to somebody now who can give speeches and do all the things that I do? Um, so it's 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 a life process, I guess, to a certain degree. It's same thing, like becoming confident speaking French, you know, and using my French and not being afraid to make mistakes when I speak. And and again, being the more important thing is using it than making a mistake. It's, it doesn't matter if I make mistakes. It's normal. People who speak English make mistakes. People who speak French make mistakes in their own language. Like we do it all day long. So why would you be afraid to make a mistake in another language? The important thing is using it. You know, use everything and all the tools to your advantage. Use all of your experience growing up and all of the good and the bad things that have, you, that have happened to you as a part of your experience. Take something away from that. But again, look at it with introspection and say, Oh, you know, I got into trouble when I did this. I hung out with this group of people or I did whatever. Okay, well, what did you learn from that? What did you take away from it? Where are you now? And if you're doing something now, how do you use that or how do you apply that in a positive way? 
is there a way that you can help other people? Is there a way that you can share your story that will mobilize or involve or activate other people to do things? It's, it's just stuff like that. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of that. It's, I, I, so I don't know if, if intention is really, I mean, being older now, there's definitely a certain amount of calculation that goes into certain things, I guess you could say, because, because I'm so aware of what uh, the opportunities that still lie before me in terms of like, even just learning myself about even, even expanding my communication skills and all that, obviously, you know, that's something that I want to better. You always want to do more and more, you know, before I got into politics, I was working in, 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 in streetwear and clothing in the clothing industry and in other industries. And I was a brand manager and a marketing director. So, you know, that all came from graffiti because I knew how to put my name out there in a location and everyone was talking about it. So if I could do that, I knew how to place an ad in a magazine and where to place the ad or who to sponsor or, or where to put the brand's identity out so that people would see it and want to be a part of it or buy it or, or, and I, and it wasn't just about sales for me. It was about building a community. If I was, if I was representing a brand or a clothing brand, well, for me, it was about a lifestyle. It wasn't about money. It was about if you adhere to these, to this, to this culture that this brand is a part of, then this is your community and this is your culture. And this is, it's, it was about that for me. It wasn't about just a, a dividend or a sale, right? Because I wasn't making money off of the sales. I was making, I was helping build the brand and that, that I learned from graffiti culture because I wasn't getting paid to do graffiti. Right. And in I brought that into politics. Like, look, you know, big white beard. I have a tattoo on the side of my head that I've had since I was 14 years old, but I found a way to make my image work. If I'm in a suit and tie, or if I'm in a t-shirt and shorts, you will recognize me because of my beard. You'll recognize me super far. I've got white hair and a white beard and I'm 48 years old and I had that at 30. So it's like, this is who I am. You know, I use the fact that my name is Sterling. It's a very rare name. Not many people have it. I hated it when I was a kid because it singled me out. But today I'm like, well, people know me on a first name basis. So they know Sterling, the politician, big white beard. So I've branded myself. There's 103 elected officials in Montreal. You know, if I ask somebody, name me 10, 10 elected officials, most people can't do it. But normally I'll pop in. So communicating, like even communicating just through your image and how you dress or, or your style is a part of it too. It's nonverbal communication. It's, 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 a, it's an issue of accessibility. Again, you know, some people who studied politics or pol uh, poli sci or come from accounting or legal backgrounds uh, or, you know, some people who are professionals in certain fields uh, can, not everyone, and I, and I, I don't want to say everyone, but some people, and we've all been in the situation where where when you engage in a conversation, people talk down to you or over you because you're not a you're not in the same field as them, so you're not going to understand it on their level. And what I like about what I do is, and like I said before, I'm a citizen elect. I speak as a citizen. When I speak in council, I speak as a citizen. I never profess to be an expert on something. If I don't know a subject, if I don't know the answer to a question that you ask me. I don't think just because I'm elected, I need to give you an answer. My job is I'm elected. I have access to the information. You ask me a question, I can go get the answer. I can go learn about it and come back to you and then engage in the conversation. I don't feel insecure to the point where I have to have an answer for every question. 
or have a position on everything. And that's part of communicating too. That's part of being honest. It's part of being equal to, to, to your neighbor, to the people that you represent, because not everyone's going to understand it. So, and that's a part of communication is understanding the people that you represent and work for and that who have given you the privilege to engage with them. You have to stay among those people. You have to remain. That's who you are. That's where you come from. And the minute that you separate yourself from that because of a title or because of a role or a job, I think that's a really sad moment because, you know, when we say don't forget where you come from kind of thing, that's what it is. It's like anyone can be elected. You know, one day maybe you'll be elected and it, it, you will learn it just like anyone else. If you can go to school for four years and I, and I use this analogy a lot, you know, if, if I wanted to become a lawyer, you know what I would study, you know, what's maybe eight years in law school or maybe less or whatever in practice, I've been elected for eight years. So I've done, I've done multiple degrees, you know, like, I mean, I've worked in engineering, urban planning, I've worked in infrastructure. There's a thousand fields, you know, community activism, law. Like, I mean, I've addressed all these issues. So simultaneously, I've been paid to learn rather than go to school and, and pay to learn. So if you can get a degree in four years, and in my first mandate, I got a degree in poli sci. In eight years, I've done, uh, you know, a PhD in poli, in poli sci in a certain way, you know, like I've learned so much. I can lecture on it. I could go give a, 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 I could go teach political science from, from a different perspective. You know, it's, it's so we have to recognize that, that what we learn every day or, or who we are as people um, and, what, and, and what we don't know actually makes us stronger because the minute that you think you know everything, you don't ask questions because you think you know the answer or you, you agree with something politicians have a responsibility to always ask questions. We always need to be asking questions. Even if we know the answer, we need to ask the question to make sure that the people telling us what they're telling us understand why they're saying it so that they can actually follow through with what they're writing on paper. Because again, who wrote, who built, who put the file together and then who's presenting it to us can be two separate entities, but it doesn't mean that somebody understands what they're presenting. You give me any file and tell me you need to present it in council. I can present it. I can read it. I can read the file and I can speak with certainty and confidence and conviction and the whole deal and put on a whole show if I want. But did I actually understand what I just read to you? Maybe not. So there's a lot of posturing, a lot of things like that that happen. And it's important, I think, to always be honest, stay grounded, stay true to yourself, stay true to, stay true to your community, stay true to the people who have given you the privilege to represent them. And that goes for any level of government. And just stay humble and, and take all of that life experience, everything that you have. And, you know, in politics, it's crazy. Like people, like I've never understood, like everyone's afraid of the skeletons in their closet. That's what we hear, right? I mean, I'm covered from head to toe in tattoos. I was in gangs. I was in really bad gangs. I was involved in stuff. And, but there's a context to everything. You know, when I was 14 years old, I was a kid. I was involved in gangs and they were really, you know, crappy crappy gangs and really bad ideologies. But I got out of that by the time I, before I was 17, not many kids are able to get themselves out of something instead of just getting sucked in. So I'm an example to other kids that you can get out and you can do something else with your life. And it doesn't have to be like, like a, a death sentence, I guess is a really bad way of saying it, but it doesn't have to be, uh, uh, you don't have to be condemned for the rest of your life for some, some crappy decisions you made or some stupid 
stupid mistakes that you did. It's like, it's about ownership, accountability. It's about action. It's about what did you do to, um, to uh, redeem yourself in a certain way? How do you show me that you learned from that, that, that experience and you took it and did something positive with it? What are you doing with it? You know? So again, it comes, it comes to about being grounded. It's, it's, it's like, I don't know. It's, it, it's, it's really humble grounding. And, and, you know, you said it before when I speak, it's passionate, it's honest. Like, I, I mean, I hope it's who I am. People tell me that. So this is why I say it back is because so many people say it, but I don't think when I speak that I'm speaking in any specific way. I just like to engage with people. I like to share my story. If it can change someone's life, then I feel I have some purpose and it's important as individuals. We want to have purpose. We want to know that we did something good for someone else. We want to know that the bad things that we went through and the struggles in our lives or the challenges, even politics, it's extremely challenging. Like, do I really want to continue in politics? Not really, but who else is going to do it? You know, who else is going to do this? And, and is the other person who's going to do it, do it with the same conviction I'm going to do it with, you know, until there's enough people doing it like I'm doing, then I don't know if I want to step away just yet until I, you know, maybe change the culture a little bit more and maybe open the doors for some, some different people to get involved. So, you know, it, but it, but it doesn't mean I necessarily want to do it. It's that I have a responsibility to step up to the challenge and to step up to the responsibility because I've been asked to by the, by the public. I've been given that opportunity and that responsibility. I've been given, I've been given the, it's exactly that. I've been given that responsibility. And I can't turn my back on that. I can't just, it can't just be about me. It can't be about what I'm afraid of. You know, like there's times where, you know, I'm afraid to go to counsel. I'm afraid I, I have anxiety and I just don't, you know, I, I suffer from my own mental health issues and things like that. Like, like most people do depression and anxiety and all these things because of the amount of energy that we give to everything. It becomes very difficult sometimes, even on a personal level to do the stuff that we do. And I have to find somewhere that confidence that strength to rise to that responsibility to not let the people who have placed their faith in me down i can't do it i might and i also have to have the confidence to say that sometimes i might make a decision or i might be involved in a decision or, or something that isn't going to make everyone happy and i have to know that i can't make everyone happy that i'm going to face criticism and there's going to be attacks and there's going to be that but how do i choose to approach that how do I how do I take on that weight on my shoulders? How do I take on that burden or that that difficult responsibility of assume of knowing that you know my neighbor might not like me because I did something and they're mad at me? And what what I've learned through my life is that what I can do is I can talk to that person. I can I can have enough I can have the guts to face them, to hear them out, to not be afraid to hear what they have to say. But by engaging in that, that communication, 50% of the problem gets resolved because they've been, I, I was brave enough to hear it face to face from them. And that's what people want. They want that accountability. They want you to be like, I have something to say to you. I want to say it to your face. Don't hide from me. Don't mute me. Don't block me. Don't do this. So what I do is I confront things straight on. Like, and that's what I learned in, in, in gangs was if you're going to try to intimidate me or you're going to try to scare me or something, well, I can either be afraid and run away 
Or I can intelligently, again, not in a confrontational way, but I can face you, face that fear, and normally find a middle ground because communication is the key to everything, right? So once you sit with that person, you can diffuse respectfully a situation to a point of either agreeing to disagree or um, or just just disagreeing, but it's it's fine. It's 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 not the end of the world, and and it doesn't mean that that person and you can't agree on another issue. So that one issue doesn't have to be a make or break. And if you allow that one thing to to build up so much fear, or so much anxiety, or so much stress that you won't have a conversation about it, then you'll never have the opportunity to have a conversation with the same person about something that you may come together on. So. I don't know. Like, I mean, that's a long-winded answer again, but I think it's pertinent in terms of like, in terms of the responsibilities in, in, in politics, and um, and yeah, it's 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 really a huge privilege. And I mean, you know, it's a job. It's a job, regardless, and it's and it pays well, and it's and it it's you know, 103 people out of, out of a million, you know, one point whatever a million people in a city will get engaged or get elected into politics in the city, and you know, maybe three parties will say I'll run. So maybe 300 people out of a million so people will actually run in municipal politics and get engaged. I mean, when you look at that percentage, it's you're really lucky if you have that opportunity or if you've been given or been asked to rise to that challenge. It's huge. It's such a small group of people that are willing to or capable or are confident enough to do it. And there's so many other people out there who should and who could and who can and who hopefully will at one day because that's the more people that get engaged, the better and more democratic the process is. But it's also understandable why a lot of people don't want to do it. Your approach to your profession seems to be super interesting. Thank you for showcasing how you went about self-improving and how you've leveraged your skill set throughout your career. So now I want to jump into a bit of a lighter topic which is our rapid fire segment. The following short questions help the audience get to know you better. Try keeping your answers under a minute. So the first one is, who do you look up to? Wow. Uh, who do I look up to? Hold on, let me think for a second. Man, I, you know what? Henry Rollins, Tony Hawk, you know, Mark Gonzalez, Johnny Ramone. Um, yeah, you know, uh, I mean... A lot of the people I look up to are sports icon, like, I mean, alternative sports people, uh, musicians, but um, yeah, you know, Greta Thunberg, like, you know, youth activists that are doing great things. Love it. And the next one would be, when are you happiest? Nowadays, I guess when I'm, you know, when I'm playing with my son and I'm not being bothered by anyone about work, you know, or being stopped on the street for something, but when am I, you know what, seriously, when I'm alone, when I'm alone, um, within my own thoughts, uh, that's probably when I'm happiest. When I, when I, when I can silence everything around me to take that time that I said before to reflect. Absolutely. And, 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 and have introspection. If you could have dinner with someone dead or alive, who would it be? This is going to be a, a very, um, a very personal, very heartfelt answer. And I'm going to say it without trying to be emotional, but it's going to make me a little bit emotional. But honestly, I, w- I would rather sit down with my mother or my father, to be quite honest. Because, um, because I lost, you know, they passed away when I was young. They never saw uh, me accomplish this stuff. 
And uh, they always believed in me. And I was because of the um, because of what I experienced as a kid and the trouble that I caused. Uh, it would be interesting to um, to hear their opinion on terms of who I turned out to be and if I lived up to their expectations. I guess, yeah. and that's very emotional for me. It's hard for me not to do that without a tear in my eye. But that would be my answer. That's a beautiful answer. Thank you for sharing such a personal response. As a final question in the rapid fire segment, what content are you currently consuming? Examples are movies, TV shows, books, websites, or even podcasts. <laughs> okay, so ironically, that's interesting. So right now, um, I've been training a lot. I've been working out. I got started getting back into major shape for the elections um, about two months ago. So when I'm, you know, when I'm working out, I'll be watching uh, till uh, from dusk till dawn the the series on Netflix. <laughs> ironically, which is really weird. Um, and before that, I was watching Marvel The Flash. So I, I tend to need no-brainer stuff um, to have like kind of white noise around me when I'm doing things. I need to be have, have multiple things going on. So those are the two shows that I've been watching, which give me absolutely no... Uh, what can I say? No, sub, no, no real substance, but, but provide me with a distraction and enough of a distraction to stay focused on the other things I need to do in terms of reading that that's, that's going to be, I don't read a lot. I tend to read, um, intensely during periods of my life where, um, I'm going through difficult things. So right now I'm rereading a lot of things like the Tao Te Ching. I'm rereading, uh, the art of war, rereading, uh, 36 stratagems. Uh, uh I've reread, um, uh, the, um, the four agreements, uh, which is a book, um, uh, I've, the book of the five rings. I read a lot of Asian and, uh, Asian, uh, religion and, and, and culture because it gives me perspective on the things I'm doing. And I'm reading a lot of, uh, a lot of small books on Buddhism right now. And a lot of it's just to center myself because I'm going into a very difficult election with a very uh, specific, um, uh, negative tone around it i'm trying to stay very zen and very uh very calm i guess you can say absolutely you've alluded to how your four-year term is slowly coming to an end however there's an upcoming election in early november which you've decided to run in how exciting with that being said what do you hope to accomplish if you're re-elected you know that's that's different what do i accomplish what do i hope to accomplish if i'm re-elected i don't know because the thing in politics, what's difficult is I've been elected for eight years and there's a lot of things that, are, that I've been trying to push for for eight years that haven't happened yet. So can they be accomplished in the next four years? I don't know. What I can do is make sure that they're always at the forefront of conversations. So hopefully they are turned into priorities. So, I mean, I have a number of files that I'm not going to name, but it's... Um, I, I just, yeah, in the next four years, it's, it's going to be based on, based on what citizens need and just making sure that, you know, my, my most important thing is make, is, is saying that I'm going to be there to represent the voice of the community and the public. That's what I want to work on. I want to continue to make sure that there's a strong voice for my community and for the people who may feel they don't have a voice. And then all of the files and all that fall into place as they go and, and the issues. Great answer. I really appreciate hearing your take on why you do what you do. So now I want to go into another fun segment. I'd like to hear your thoughts on what it takes to become an elected official. You've obviously done it in the past, and so you have all this interesting insight you can share. 
Now let's imagine someone would be interested in becoming a city councillor. What is the actual step-by-step -step approach that they can take to do so? Therefore, my first question would be, how do you even choose a political party? Well, how do you choose a political party? That's a good question. I didn't choose a political party. The political party chose me in 2013 because I wasn't involved. I wasn't engaged. So what I would say is if you have an interest in politics, um, I mean, you have to research. I mean, there's no other way. Well, so the first thing to do would be to meet with the people who are already elected that, you know, take meetings with them or have conversations with them based on who they're involved with. And then see, you know, it, it, politics, I, I guess, let me go back to it. It's, I don't know if I would make a choice based on a party or based on the individuals I have to work with. And that, which would in turn mean the leader of a party, right? Which would set the tone for a party. But parties, and this is very important that I say this, that there's the leader of a party, the person who is seen as the, the, the chef de la partie, who will give a specific tone and a, a specific identity to the party. But more importantly than that, and I want to stress this, more importantly than the leader of a party are the members of a party. And that is the public that make up the membership of a party are more important than the elected officials or the leader of that party uh, because the members will dictate the positions and the priorities. And then it's up to the elected officials and, and the, the, the head, the chef of the party, I guess you could say the chief of the party to make sure that those things are the priorities. So meet with members, speak with people around you, get their opinions on different issues and again you know you can be in disagreement with a political party on a number of issues but you could line up on a whole bunch of others so you have to find that healthy kind of middle ground or balance so speak to members speak to people speak to elected officials and then look at the party and the platforms you know again i got engaged in politics i was engaged and people approached me. So if you put it out there, if you put it out, out there, you have an interest and you make it public, most probably people will come to you and then you can kind of pick and choose. And for me, that's important, right? Because for a party to come after you, they have to know a little bit about you. They have to do research. They have to know who you are as a person for the, for, for the most part. They have to do their homework on you. So I think that's a really important part of the process, right? It's you can go to somebody and knock on someone's door, but I think it's important when somebody comes to you because, you know, somebody who, if you're not a fit with them, aren't going to come to you. You might be searching to where you fit, but sometimes it's interesting. Like in my case, it was really interesting that, that, that the party came to me and I'm glad that they did. And the fit is good, but it's because they, understood who I was as a person based on their research. So it was a natural fit. So, you know, if I would have probably approached somebody myself, I would have not had enough information or I, I, I probably, I could have easily ended up with the wrong team had I gone that route to go research it myself. So really just talk to people. It's, it's all about communication. Talk to people, talk to elected officials and, and that's it. And just, yeah, get their opinion. Like people talk to me all the time about politics and, and ask me questions like you did. And I'll always tell them, I won't preach for my own uh, parish. Like I won't say 
you have to come with the team that I'm with. I'm not going to try to sell them. It's more about the individual and the individual's values. If your values are more lined up with something else, then I'm going to encourage you to, to go towards that because that's where your values lie and that's what you're going to want to defend. You're not going to, you can't join like me and try to fight with me if you're, if you're, you know, you're, you're right to center and, and I'm left to center. It's like, it's not going to work. You know what I mean? So it's really about each individual. I mean, I, 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 that's why I never try to sell partisan politics because you have to find what's, what's right for you. But it's through talking to people. Sincerely, it's through talking to people. And auditing, just audit. Audit audit groups. Same thing as university or college. You can go into a class and audit a class to see if you would be interested in it and see how the teacher teaches. See how the leader leads. See how the elected officials do their job. And if, and if those are the kinds of people you, you would ever aspire to be colleagues with. Get involved with a local association of a political party and work with them and see if, you know, it's not a lifetime commitment. Just see if it, see if the values adhere, get involved, see if you're, you're heard and listened to and respected. And then if so, then continue with that marriage. And if it, and if it doesn't work, then move on to the next thing. That's a long winded answer. I'm sorry, but it's a very, that's a very important question in terms of like, you can't just choose something. And in politics, sometimes you'll see people who will, they'll some a political party will approach them. will say to run in an election, for example, or something. And the person, just because they're like overwhelmed by the, like the appreciation of having been approached and, and being given that opportunity, you can easily get enamored by the, by how you feel in terms of self-confidence because of that, but you could easily end up with the wrong group if you don't ask those questions. And if you don't take the time necessary to really do it, when I was approached uh, by Projet Montréal, which is who I'm, uh, who I'm elected with, obviously, when I was approached in 2012 to run with them, my first reaction was, well, let me get involved with the local association first in my writing. Let me audit those meetings and get involved and see if, see if the discussions are things that stimulate or interest me and see, let me see if there's a, if I have something to contribute. And if I do, then, then I'll get involved. And that's how I did it. And then and, and that's how I got involved. I, I sat down, I audited, I made no commitment at first. And I just said, listen, let me get engaged. Let me get engaged. And let me see, let me see if I'm cut out for this or if, or if I'm really interested in it. Excellent. So now let's assume you've selected a political party or you decide to run independently. How would you actually go about getting your name on the ballot? That's a really good question because you know what? I don't know if I can answer that question because the whole technical aspect of it, as I am very lucky because we have a party and the party does most of the work, right? It prepare, they, they, it's, you know, it's our party who prepares everything for us. But I mean, to get your name on a ballot, there's a whole process. You would have to go onto the Director General of Elections Quebec's website. Um, on there, you would find all the information and all of the legal criteria and all of the documents and all of the things that you have to follow, which in itself, uh, again, it, it's, it's kind of like I said, it, it's, it's a lot of information. And if you're kind of going into it yourself, it can be very, I, I, I think, cause I've never done this process, but I can tell you, I would not have ever done that. I would not have gone on the site myself and I wouldn't have looked if a party would not have approached me and had not worked with me through that. It would have been, it would have been a very discouraging process potentially for me. Some people are like, I don't want to say political nerds in a bad way, but like, you know, some people really are stimulated by that stuff and like to go in and, and do that. It's possible. But what I would suggest is if you were going to do that, 
find somebody who is very politically engaged that you trust or somebody, you know, it could be a poli-sci student or it could be somebody who's already working in politics and have them accompany you through the process because they'll already have a good understanding of everything and they can, they can guide you kind of like a, a political advisor, find yourself somebody who you trust, who can be a political advisor and, or a campaign director or a campaign advisor and do it, do it with them. You know, have somebody accompany you, but somebody who you trust, somebody whose values you you respect, and somebody who has a little bit of experience, and who them themselves don't want to be the candidate, but can take on uh, kind of going through all of the the paperwork with you and 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 registering. It's not super complicated, I guess, but it's because there's a lot of legal aspects to it and things that you have to respect. It's always good to have somebody who understands the fine line. It's kind of like, you know, when you buy a car and they always say, did you read the fine print? You didn't read the fine print? Well, you know, you got screwed later on. Uh, you know, running is a, it's good to understand the fine print. And if you're not the kind of person that normally reads the fine print, find somebody who can do it. And that's what a political party's responsibility is, is their job is to do all of that stuff. They have their accountants, they have their legal advisors, they have everything and they can go through everything and sit with you as an individual and make sure that you you go through the process properly. So it's it's I don't want it to sound discouraging because it's it's not to discourage, but it's more about preparedness. It's more about making sure that you don't go into it too blindly so that something can backfire. Because you could get through the process, end up as a candidate, and then something can come back and backfire against you. And then you either have to retract or pull out or you made a mistake, like a a, a very simple fundraising mistake that's not legal or something. And it could that could have more damage in terms of if you want to run again or do something again. So it's better to make sure all your, all your I's are dotted and all your T's are crossed properly uh, before you do it. Cause there is a, there is a huge legal aspect involved, right. In, in running. Cause I mean, you're, you're taking on a big responsibility uh, for, for the community and politics is it's, it, it can be complicated. Once you're in, it's not a big deal, but it's like, doing it's sort of like, you know, I would, I would equate it to the same thing. If you were to ask me, Michael, if you were to ask me tomorrow, you know, I never went to university for me, applying to go to university would be a hurdle like that. I don't want to even go through the, like the process. I can't even imagine, you know, some people have done it. It's not complicated, their application for university, but I, I, that's a huge process for me that I personally wouldn't want to do, but I would get somebody who's already done it to walk me through it. That's kind of what I'm saying. You know, if I was going to do it, I wouldn't just go into it blindly. I would make sure somebody helped me through it. Absolutely. So finding someone to guide you through that process, assuming you have found the right resources and all the paperwork is done properly. Now it's campaign time. I have to ask, what are your current campaign strategies and what would your advice be to someone who is running in an election? Well, I can't give you my campaign strategies. Can't do that. Can't make that public, can I? No. Um, no, campaign strategies are, you know, look, it, it's very simple. My campaign strategy is knock on as many doors as possible, meet as many people as possible, and be as honest as possible when I knock on those doors. I don't push a platform. I don't push a local program. I don't push any of that. I had that question asked me last night on door, in Door to Door. Somebody said, well, you know, well, what's your, what are some of the projects you're working on? And my answer was none. And the people were like, huh? And I was like, I'm working on so many different things that it's pointless for me to start enumerating the things that I'm working on. What are the things that are important to you? If you ask me a question on what's important to you or certain issues, and I can tell you what my position is on those things or what I've done on those things. But I'm not knocking on your door to sell a car. 
or or sell a, you know sell an internet connection or something you know or, or a phone line. I'm knocking on your door so that you know who I am. You're meeting Sterling Downey. I you know I'm born and raised, grew up here. Um, I'm currently your elected official. I've been elected for the last eight years. Um, I'm going to run again. I've, I've been asked to run again, so I'm going to run again. I want to continue representing your voices. And anytime you have a question or something, here's my business card. My cell phone number's on it. I can come back and sit with you and talk to you about any particular issue and any information that you need. I can go get it and I can bring it back to you. And we can. So it's really not about anything other than that, right? So, and and campaign campaigns are about visibility. I mean, again, you know, I can put up my poster and I have my name and I have my political party and people may vote just be, they may vote for me just because of, they like the political party. They may vote for the political party because they like me. They may just vote for me and not for the rest of my team, our team or, or our political party. All of that is fine. But for me, the important thing is, is that people know me. So that's my campaign strategy is to try to make sure as many people as possible know me because people say, you know, I've never seen you in, in eight years. It's like, well, there's 70,000 residents. It's, it's hard for me. But this goes back to the beard and everything. It's, it's like, well, you might, you've probably seen me, but I might not have come to your door, but, but you could always reach out to me anytime you want. And that's what I have to remind people is that I can't necessarily come to you because that's me going to 70,000 people. But each individual can come to me, and that's one person coming to one person. So it, it's, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's better if, if citizens come to me, and, and that's what my strategy is, is making myself as accessible as possible. That's what it has to be. So, yeah, it's really just about that and doing an honest campaign, a respectful campaign, and, you know, and, and giving 150%, not taking anything for granted. It's not because I, I'm an incumbent elected official that I'm going to get elected. It's not because I got elected twice that I'm going to get elected a third time. It's, it's, it's putting in the work. It's, it's knocking on the doors. It's talking to people. It's listening to people. And I don't solicit votes when I knock on doors. I don't knock and say, will you vote for me? Who are you going to vote for? It's really, I'm just here to present myself. Here's my information. Here's my cell phone number. If you're curious, contact me. That's it. That's all. I'm going to leave you alone now. That's really my strategy. I don't push. I don't force. I don't you know, it's not, it's not overbearing. And, and in marketing, we call that uh, pull marketing versus push marketing. You know, I'm not forcing something on you. I'm letting you gravitate to me. Here's, here's who I am. Here's how you can reach me. If you want to gravitate, gravitate, and we'll, we'll talk. Awesome. Now that we've heard about how to become a city councillor, I want to briefly discuss the topic of social media and politics. Social media seems to be a double-edged sword. On one side, you can easily spread your message and potentially reach thousands of local citizens. However, on the other side, there's a level of scrutiny that you're subject to. Worst of all, you can receive negative feedback from unhappy individuals who disagree with your stance on certain issues or the work that you're doing. How have you navigated the use of social media during your political career? Social media during my political career? Wow. Social media right now is a real, and I'm not going to say it any other way than say it's a real shit show. And I mean, that, that I'm saying totally honest and wearing that on my sleeve because of the pandemic on top of what happened in the U S in terms of politics, uh, prior to the pandemic and, uh, a very poor leadership and a very arrogant, ignorant, um, irresponsible approach to leadership, uh, and, and, and a very irresponsible use of social media. Um, 
by leaders, by people in positions of leadership and, and great influence. The internet for me has become like social media for me has become like the biggest cesspool of 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 anything in the world. It's it's because the pandemic um, caused enormous amounts of isolation for people. People have um, how can I put this? We forgot how to be social, how to engage with one another uh, publicly, and obviously we've created these walls, which are our zooms, our our you know, our Google meets are, you, you name it. Uh, all of these things have created these barriers, this, this, this barrier that we have between us right now, as we're talking, um, creates like a space where you can kind of say or do things. And, 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 you know, if you're not thinking about accountability or impact or, 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 or what, how you could be affecting somebody else. It can be very grave. And I mean, we're talking face like at least we see each other as we're having this conversation, doing this podcast. So there's, there's, there's a notion of, of connection. There's, there's a notion of personal, there's something personal happening on social media behind a screen name or a fake name or something, Twitter or something like that. With that intro introverted kind of, antisocial kind of situation, mental health issues, anxiety, depression, all of the things that have happened, stress over the time of the pandemic, and that lead to anger, frustration, resent, all of these things. What happens is it just, it comes out behind the keyboard in ways that are really totally unacceptable. Like the amount of abuse and bullying and, and intimidation and stuff that goes on is is disgusting. I mean, I, I speak in high schools and have and and um, you know universities and elementary schools and all that, and I've been doing it for years on anti-bullying programs and everything, Pink Shirt Day, and all the things that I'm very proud to be an ambassador for because I was bullied as a kid. Um, now this stuff comes into your house. It's like in politics, you used to go on the street and somebody might say, "I don't like you" or something like this and that. Now you log onto your your Facebook or something or on your Twitter account, and people are projecting this stuff to you, you know, like they're attacking you or they're complaining to you. And I always remind people, it's like, you know, if you want to meet, then let's meet. So the way I approach it, I guess, cause I'm six foot four and, you know, 220 pounds and, you know, I'm a big guy and I, I can be, my appearance can be very intimidating. And because I, you know, I used to be a bouncer and, you know, I was involved in gangs. I've, I've, I've been in so many conflictual situations where I have to diffuse things if I'm not prepared for them to explode into something very dangerous for everyone. What I try to do is when people, and not everyone, it depends on the tone, but when I realize a rational person is being irrational or irrespectful uh, uh, through social media, what I'll normally do is I'll always respond with, I would be happy to meet with you in person, have a coffee and talk about this issue. Because I always try to bring it back to the face-to-face, in-person thing, to remind people that I'm a human being, you're a human being. Uh, you know, it's I'm not just a Facebook profile. You're not just. It's there's a constant. Not I don't want to make it sound like aggressive or mean, but there's a consequence when you when you say something to somebody, you can see the impact emotionally on the person. Like if it, if it affects them personally, or if they're hurt by your comment, or if they're distraught by your comment, or if your comment makes them angry. Like emotion can be communicated face to face, non verbally. Whereas it cannot be done necessarily through 
uh, texts or a message or a Twitter, you know, you know, 142 or whatever it is, characters, you can't really convey that kind of message. So my way of diffusing things and showing the utmost respect, and I sincerely mean that, is by saying to the person, well, let's meet in person. It's not a threat. It's just you have something to say to me. And it's like I said earlier in the podcast, if you have something to say to me, then I owe you the respect to overcome my fear and meet with you and hear what you have to say and, and, and take it within, within, you know, a respectful way, but take it and reflect on it and then try to see what we can do to find that middle ground or that, uh, that uh, agree to disagree or, or work on something together. Maybe it will, it'll spin on to another subject where we'll, we'll agree. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh, didn't even know we had the same opinion on this, but this we don't, but that we do. So, Oh, wow, that's cool. And this is more important actually now than the other, the prior thing. So you really have to have that conversation and the internet doesn't allow you to do that because people can just ignore you, not answer. They can blast something out there. You can respond and then they can just refuse to respond again. It's just because they wanted to get something off their chest. It's a lot of verbal, um, verbal, uh, 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 you know, I guess, you know, if I was punk rock, I'd say verbal puke, you know, it's like people, not everyone. And some people also who are uncomfortable reaching out to somebody, there's good aspects to it. Somebody who is maybe introverted, who is intimidated to contact me because they don't want to bother me or they don't, you know, they think that their question isn't important enough or something. It can also be a really good tool when it's used responsibly where somebody can communicate with me and say, I'm sorry to bother you. I don't know if my question is actually relevant or if it can, but um, could you, you know, I, I have a question. And then I'll normally say, well, you know, I'm glad you reached out to me. Let's meet again in person. And I would, yeah. And then it can be very empowering as well. So there's a really fine balance to making sure that you are aware and, and, and reflect on how people are reaching out to you and what their intention is. But there's a lot more negative right now on the internet than there is positive. And it's, it's caused a lot of politicians to to not run again, to retract attacks on their families, things like that. Like, I mean, if, if somebody ever threatened my family, like God forbid you ever make the mistake of doing that. Like I will not only say that I'm going to meet you, I will find you. I will find you. You threatened my family. I will find you and you will be made help. You will be held accountable. Like you will have to tell me to my face and you have to understand that you, you know, there's a consequence. Like I, I would never do anything to, to hurt somebody, but you're going to have to say that to my face and you, and then there's a consequence. Either the police are getting involved or me and you are going to have an issue, but it's, you're not going to bring my family to me. I'm open game. I'm a public figure. You want to attack me. You can attack me. You start to threaten me though. There's a consequence. There's a, there's a line. If I'm disrespectful to you, I cross that line. Then there's a consequence for me. But as human beings, we have to understand that we have a responsibility to one another we have a responsibility to one another's mental health. So what I say could hurt somebody and really spin them into a bad thing. It could be somebody already suffering from mental health issues. And if I ridicule them or if I'm disrespectful to them, it could put them into a very dark and negative space in their mindset. And it could actually have a very negative impact on their life. So you don't want to hurt somebody deliberately. What you want to do is understand the situation, be very careful and try to make the best out of the situation possible, even if it starts off negative. So it's just, it's a very difficult time. And I don't think politics sincerely, and I, and I do say this as well, again, social media is a great tool to initiate a contact, 
but we should not be doing politics through social media. Nobody should be using social media to do politics. Social media should not be the place to have a conversation. You should not be having a conversation on a Facebook post going back and forth about something that's a serious issue. You should be sitting down and having the conversation. If it's that important to you to spend two hours going back and forth on Facebook, but it's not important enough for you to meet in person and have that conversation face-to-face, I have a hard time, um, and I say this with the utmost respect, but I have a hard time taking it that seriously if you're not willing to actually sit down and have that conversation, especially if the other person offers to. Because what I end up feeling is social media just becomes your soapbox and you just want to complain and you just want to you know, scream and shout, but you actually don't want a result. You actually don't want, when I say I'm going to meet with you, it's because I actually want to find a solution to the problem and I want to see if there's an action. I might not be able to do it right away. It might take four years for me to find a result. But if we meet in person, then we establish a relationship and then I can think about getting you a solution every day or when I'm in the right conversation or in the right situation or the right place, then I can make that happen. So yeah, it's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with social media. And I, you know, I'm, I've, I've thought about silencing my accounts, but, but it's important for me to be accessible. Like I've said, accessibility to the people I represent is really important. So I, I struggle with the notion of going offline, but again, phones my phone exists you know my email is there you can reach me but most people choose not to use those mediums anymore and it's and and it's really it's unfortunate it's really unfortunate and uh yeah i think your generation are going to be the ones that are going to reestablish um a decorum if you will online i think you you guys are going to be the ones to decide the tone that you want and a lot of the people i see right now it's funny because we always say that that young people are the most irresponsible. You know, we we criticize and 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 really target our 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 youth in terms of responsibility and irresponsibility. But the majority of the people that I see online who are being aggressive and all that are all adults or much older, like older than me, like retired people who are either isolated alone, and that's their only way of staying in contact with people but it also becomes their only way of expressing their anxiety and their frustration. And I find that really disturbing, but it's also very telling of a mental health issue and some serious things that have been caused by this pandemic. To shift gears a little bit, we'll look at advice to young people, as I'm sure there are a lot of young listeners out there. And I want to get your take on what advice you have for them. The first one is, why do you find it important for young people to get involved in their local communities? It's important to get engaged because you can actually change things. If you speak to the right person, if you, if you manage to get in contact with the proper person who's going to listen to you and who cares about what you have to say, you can actually bring change. You can actually, like, I'm an example of that, I guess, right? Like in a certain way, like we met whatever, we're doing this podcast now. I didn't have to do what I did that resulted in us meeting. I didn't have to do that. Like, I mean, there was no reason for me to do it other than I was asked. And it's also something that I really care about, but it's because I want to help younger people uh, bring change. I want to inspire and I want to do it. That's why I did it because it's a personal value of mine. I didn't do it because I got paid to do it or whatever. I didn't do it. You know, it's, I took time out of my night to do it because of that. I'm doing this right now because it's important to me to use my voice 
and use this opportunity and this, this, this privilege that you're giving me to speak to you and to share this with other people to mobilize them and to let them know that you can reach out to me. So, you know, I always tell people, it's not, you, you don't have to be old enough to vote to bring change. You know, if you want to cause change, you just have to engage in the conversation. You have to speak up. You have to speak to the people that can help you do it. You don't have to even change anything now. You could just meet somebody, speak to somebody who will mentor or guide you or inspire you or plant that seed in your head to say, this is my position right now. Okay, I don't really, I'm not really going to do anything, but this is it's still something that's, that bothers me enough that I want to talk to somebody about it. I want to get some insight, you know, do whatever. And then maybe in four years, you do something about it. Maybe in four years, you speak up and you, you mobilize about it, but that's fine. It's okay. It's about, it's like a garden. It's about planting seeds and waiting for something to grow. And, and, you know, it's like, it's like sowing those seeds of thought and, and mobilization and activism or, you know, action. That's really, really, really important. So, I mean, I didn't, you know, I, I say I didn't get involved when I was young. I guess I did in a way. And it's funny, I have a document sitting in a file behind me that, you know, we were talking about the skate, skate parks before. And I have a document, and I know I remember this story. It's just, and I used to say it to people, but I never had any documented proof of this, but now I do. Is in 1988, well before your time, but 1988, when I was in high school and I was, you know, 14 years old, when I was skateboarding with my friends, we wanted a skateboard ramp in, in Verdun. We wanted the city to build us a skateboard ramp. And, uh, you know, we, there was a, a public meeting, 10 people went to this public meeting with the sports and leisure recreations director or whatever, and, uh, you know, vocalized their opinion. There was like a little public consultation, but there was only 10 people that went. And, uh, I have a copy of the document from 1988 from this consultation, from this meeting. And these ramps actually ended up happening. The city built these ramps for us. And on that list, if you go 10 names down, my name is on there and it says Sterling Downey, you know, student Argyle Academy High School. And I was there. So at 14, even though I, you know, I forgot about that my whole life. Like I just forgot about it. And then, you know, like 30 years later or 40 years later, almost I'm, I'm, I'm elected in politics and I'm, I'm building, you know, helping build skate parks. So it, that seed was there in 1988. I actually got involved and it was through punk rock and it was through frustration. I'm like, we want something to skateboard on. You have to build it to us. Stop giving us tickets for skateboarding on the street. Give us a ramp. And we got it. We got it. And I, I didn't realize the importance of the power. Like all I can remember, like even now when I look back on it, is, wow, we got what we wanted. But the whole process to get it, to speaking up, to the consultation, to participating in the consultation, to doing all that is what resulted. But it also planted a seed in the back of my head. And then look, 40 years later, it grew into a beanstalk, which is ridiculous. And, you know, don't climb the beanstalk, but like it, it turned into that and look at what I'm doing. So I truly do believe that just doing something and getting engaged and speaking up and speaking to people and participating in something, even if, even if you're not aware of the results immediately, one day, one day, it could be sooner than later for some. It could be later than sooner for others. But at one point, you're going to realize that it actually counted for something. And it actually helped shape or guide you on that road. And, and it kind of pushed you in a direction. And even if you stray from it, you get pulled back. And for me, that document is a really 
pleasant ground. It's a very humble and grounding reminder that at 14, I did something with my friends. And those people who are on that list are my citizens today that I represent. You know, one of the people is on that list. I just went for a, a one-hour bike ride yesterday with them last night because they live up the street from me. And we've been, we've known each other, friends since we were kids. We don't really hang out all the time, but that's a citizen. That person's volunteered on my campaign now. That person's come out and flyered and door, done door to door with me. I've been skateboarding with that person throughout my life. They're my neighbor now. They have their family. I have my family. And we're still connected, but we're connected through that thing that we did. And that person today who's my age is like very happy with the skate park because they get to go use it. They get to use it with their kids. So it's like a full circle kind of thing. Yep. So it's, it's important to get engaged because, again, even if you think that your actions have no impact now, I guarantee later on you'll sit back and reflect and you'll realize that it actually had a greater impact than you think. It's beautiful to hear how your story came full circle from when you were younger to what you're doing now. I also want to ask you if you had any last pieces of general life advice for the young listeners. It's really hard as a guest growing up to find our confidence in ourselves and to find our identity and, and to figure out where we fit in and what we're going to do and what other people's expectations are of us and what other people's kind of uh, futures look like for us. Because, you know, a lot of times our parents and our families influence us in, in a certain direction doing that. And sometimes we go down a road that's not really suited for us, but we do it because we want to live up to the expectations of the people around us. I think it's important to, um, to as much as possible, try to, try to get to know yourself and, and get to know who you are and not be afraid to let other people down if you make a decision that goes against what they want for you. And Sometimes you, you may come back around to that. You may naturally come back around to what those expectations were by those people, but sometimes you need to go off on your own and find that. You have to find it for yourself. Somebody can't impose that on you. And I'll give you an interesting example. My name's Sterling, and I know this. Uh, my parents used to always say, my mother used to always say this to me. So I'm named after two people. I'm named after two very famous people. And again, the name is very rare, right? So so my, my grandmother was, uh, was British, she was English from England. And my parents obviously, and my father was Irish, but my mother and my grandmother had a lot of influence on my name. Sterling is a very British name because obviously the pound sterling, the money, but also sterling, if you look it up in the dictionary, it means of, of great value, of great, uh, great respect or whatever, great value, right? Of a sterling character, of a valuable character. So that's part of my name. Now, the people I'm named after, one is Sterling Moss, who is a famous Formula One race car driver, who was one of the first, you know, the box car, Formula One cars, like the ones with the big wheels on the side and like that. So that was Sterling Moss. He was a, he was a, he was a famous race car driver uh, from the 1940s or 50s, anyways. And then I'm named also after somebody named Sterling Lyon. And Sterling Lyon was the premier of Manitoba. So I was named after a race car driver and a politician who was, and, and, and Sterling Lyon was a lawyer and, and everything before he was premier. So my parents always wanted me to go into law. They always wanted the best for me, right? And I wasn't a studious person. I, I went into law the wrong way. I used to get into trouble with the law. So that's how I learned about the law. And I learned about criminal law and all that through being a part of the system. And it's great because I did learn a lot about law, but I just learned about it on the other hand. Um, but I am fascinated by it enough to get into trouble to learn about it. Um, but the race car thing is funny too, because I lived like in the fast lane, like skateboarding, all that stuff, like 
you know, alternative sport, like kind of cuss, cool, like break your neck kind of sports and, you know, graffiti culture and like kind of like a lot of risky behavior, we'll say, right? So my namesake actually kind of dictated for a lot of my life who I was. And I hated my name. I didn't like it, but it's it kind of set up, set me on a path with a bunch of other things, you know, like my parents telling me these stories about why I was named after these people, their expectations. It kind of forced me into a direction, but like I went the race car route for most of my life. And then at 40, I got elected and became the Sterling lion kind of thing. So it's, 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 it's interesting in life because I didn't necessarily choose that. I was given that name. I was, those seeds were planted in my head. I kind of went off and did my own thing, but I actually went down both those roads technically. And you know, I love law. I love human rights law. It's something I always said that if I wasn't in politics, maybe I'd go into, into international human rights law or something. And, you know, I would take a stab at going to law school, even though I never went to see Jupiter university and, you know, just because why not, you know what it's, these are things that I like to fight for the underdogs for people that are being bullied by different, you know, you know, like, like governments or things like that. Like, why not, you know, who better to stand up and fight for people than somebody who's not afraid to get into a fight. So, so, you know, in a way my life has kind of come around through those things. So if you're, if you're young, you know, kind of like it's, it's all about, and, and that comes with age, right? I'm 48. So there's been a lot of reflection, but throughout my life, I can tell you from the age of, I, maybe it's from, from the point when I lost my parents and don't make the same mistake as me. Don't wait until you lose somebody to start thinking about yourself because it's very easy when your family is there to not think about you because, you know, your family's there to take care of you. You're there to do other things. You kind of have all these things. When you're alone, you kind of have no choice but to start thinking about yourself because what am I going to do? Who am I going to be? How am I going to survive? How am I going to succeed? How, how am I going to have a family? Like all that. Don't wait for that. Start asking yourself those questions now. Start discovering who you are very young. Make some decisions for you, even if it goes against some other things. And trust that and tell other people, trust, let me do my thing and I will find where I sit and where I fall in this, in this, in this world. And I will, I will find my calling and I will find who I am and I will thrive in who I am. But I have to make that decision for me. You have to make that decision for yourself. You have to do it. If I would have said I'm going into politics at a young age, I would have never ended up in politics. So you kind of got to trust I don't want to sound hokey about this, but you kind of got to kind of going to trust karma, the universe and everything. And, you know, good deeds bring on good results. And, you know, look, I, you know, some of the stuff that I've talked about today, I've done a lot of bad things in my life. I've been involved in a lot of bad things that were not things that if I thought about just the karma of being involved in those things, in theory, I should have a lot of grief in my life. But because of what I've done with that stuff that happened to me or that I was involved in and because of taking responsibility and taking action on those things and changing and doing the things that were important to me, speaking out and speaking up and, you know, doing all of the things to correct those things willingly of my own volition, I changed karma. I changed. I've created a positive influence in my life. So with all of the hurdles, all of the pitfalls, all of the things that happened and, you know, people that I went to high school with are like, I can't believe you're in politics. That's crazy. Like with the crap that you did in high school and where you are, like you should be the least, like you weren't the honor student. You weren't this and that, like, how did you of all people end up there? And I always say it was because 
all of those things that you're referring to, I took accountability for those things. I made changes in my life. I took ownership for those actions. I didn't just ignorantly glorify and laugh and be like, oh, look, I did all this crappy shit and, and this is where I am. It's, it's I was like, well, you know what? I, I, I'm, am I really happy with what I did? Not, not necessarily, but it shaped me as a person. And it's what I did with that reflection and the actions that I took that corrected the karma and put me in the position I am. So as young people, there's so much you can do. And it, and it can be something, it can be one action. It can be as minute as, as one gesture. It could be hold, holding the door open for somebody walking into Tim Hortons and just not walking through it first and just saying that, you know what, this person, I'm gonna let, I'm gonna let them go through. I'm gonna do a good deed. You know, it's just, it could be walking down the street and just smiling at somebody and saying, hey, have, you know, how's it going? You know, or just like, have a good day. Like just instead of being in your own world and on your phone going down the street, a small action like that could literally be the step that's going to change the rest of your life. It's very Buddhist in the way, right? Like it's the drop of water in a glass causes, you know, causes an earthquake it, or, or whatever. The butterflies, butterfly flapping its wings causes an earthquake. It's very true. It could be one small gesture that you make and you're not even aware that in 20 years down the road, you could look back and say, you know what, this, this one gesture started a series of events or a series of actions or a series of behaviors in my life that got me here, that earned me the respect that I got from people in general. Because like I said, I grew up in Verdun, right? So all of my past, most of the people when I knock on their door, they know it, they've seen it. And you know, one of the privileges I had, like I said before, I got, I got very emotional about my parents because it's true. You know, my parents aren't here to tell me that they're proud of me or that that they're you know that that, that I did something and that, that that they think it's really cool what I ended up accomplishing considering all the trouble I got into. Um, but what's interesting is when I do my door to door, I've come face to face with people who were friends with my mother, who were the PTA mom at the elementary school or something, and who know me and they're like Sterling. Oh, it's really amazing that you're in politics, and they'll say to me, "Your mother would have been so proud of you." And that means a lot because that's, that's, that's a very personal thing for me. And I know that these people knew my mother really well. They might've known my mother better than I did in, in a way because they knew her as a friend and they would talk to each other about their kids and their aspirations or expectations for their kids or their dreams for their kids. And my mother didn't necessarily talk about that with me. So when this person tells me that I take it to heart and I'm like, wow, okay, then, then this is something that I need to do because it means that much more. So, yeah, I mean, just do you, you know, that's, that's my advice. Do you and, and really take the time to, to know yourself and to, and to allow yourself, afford yourself mistakes and afford yourself errors in life and afford yourself the strength and opportunity to, when you're ready, to correct those things. It doesn't have to be right away. It can be at any point in your life. But when you choose to change the path or when you choose to engage or get involved or when you choose to do something, when you find that motivation, it's never too soon and it's never too late. So don't beat yourself up about it. If you're 40 years old one day and you haven't done anything yet, maybe that's when you're going to do it. You know, I got elected at 40. I did a whole bunch of other things before that. It's not like I got elected at 30. You know, I didn't get elected at 20. It's like, so that's what it took me. That was my path. That was my life. That was my, my road that I had to travel, and that's how I got to where I am today. Super interesting outlook on life. 
I'll leave you with one last question. It's clear you're a very successful municipal politician. Are there any future ambitions that you have? They can be personal or professional. Uh, you know, it's it's early for me to say that. I mean, you know, this might be my last municipal mandate because I might want to, depending on what goes on, if I manage to accomplish a couple more things in the next four years, then depending on the composition of council, obviously. Uh, if I do, then I, it may be time for me to give up my space and let somebody else go. I'll be 52 years old by the end of it. I'm not old, but at the same time, you know, I, I'm all about creating place for younger people. So if politicians like me, who, if I'm lucky enough to get elected a third time, chances are I'll get elected a fourth time because I'm an incumbent. If, if, if that happens, do I just stay in something that's easy and winnable? And, or do I endorse somebody else and move on maybe to another level of government, maybe to federal politics, maybe to Senate, you know, there's, there's other things that I can do. Um, so it's going to be up to me to explore over the next four years where the experience that I've accumulated, if, if I'm elected again, like I say, again, if I'm elected, um, to take those 12 years of experience and how do I, how do I give that experience back to the community? Do I sit on other boards of directors of organizations, local organizations? Do I help make a stronger board? Do I lend that experience and my contacts and my knowledge to somebody who can benefit from it? What do I do? And that's going to be, that's going to be a lot of self-exploration and a lot of self-introspection uh, over the next four years. It'll be a lot of conversations with citizens because a lot of the, my introspection comes from talking with other people and asking them where, where they see me, what they see me doing. So it's really about engaging in that. And I mean, you know, maybe in four years, I'll have a better answer for that, but it's, you know, it, it depends, you know, or maybe I might not want to even be in, in the political realm in terms of election elected. Maybe I'll work in a cabinet for somebody, or maybe I'll go back to school, like I said, and get involved in law. Who knows? I mean, what I do, what I can say with, with certainty <laughs> is that I trust in my path that wherever I end up will be where I'm supposed to end up. And that sounds very hokey, but it's, it's true. Like I, that's the only way I can explain where I am now and where I, how I got to where I am now. And I have to just trust that if I continue to be me and do me and be honest and sincere, that I will end up where I'm supposed to end up. And I hope, and I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, I, I hope that I always rise to the occasion, but I'm confident that it will be exciting and it will be something that will hopefully continue to inspire people and provide me with a platform or a, a, a way to uh, continue to share with people like you and, and, and people who are going to listen to your podcast and things like that to inspire and mobilize my community or, or my city or my province or my country um, or, or a community, just a specific community or anything. Like, I mean, I just, that's what I'm pretty confident that no matter what I do, I'll be somehow, you know, hopefully I'll be a, an inspiration in whatever I do to, to the people around me and my colleagues. So absolutely. Any fun personal ambitions? Get better in skateboarding. I mean, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get back on my skateboard. I broke my foot a couple of years ago, skating at city hall during a, during us filming something. So it was really funny that, uh, that of all the delinquent behaviors I could do skateboarding at city hall, I break my foot, of course. Um, no, just get, you know, just get out skateboarding, do things. And, you know, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm a father, my son's three and a half years old. I mean, there's a lot of stuff there that I need to learn to do. I need to learn to also make more time to be a father rather than just be, 
a, a representative for my community. I also have to be, be there for my son. I have to be a representative for my son. I have to be his example, right? It's great to, to be an example to, to everybody, but I, you know, the one little man who I really need to inspire and I need to be important to is him. So that's, that's kind of my personal goal is to learn how to be that person for somebody who I, you know, help create and bring into this world. And then, you know, hopefully whatever, whoever I am or whatever I've done and whoever he will become and who he will be, you know, maybe in 30 years when I'm, you know, 40 years, if I'm gone, I'm not on the face of the earth anymore. And he's doing something, you know, maybe he'll be doing a podcast one day with somebody and maybe he'll be able to carry on some of the good things that I passed on to him and, and that he chose to use. And so that's, that's kind of, that's my, that's my, that's my goal. It's like to, to just do that and to, to make, to help him be, become the best person possible and, and then go out in the world and, and, and have the opportunities and share the things that I've shared with people and, and share himself with people and, and hopefully inspire people. That's wonderful. Beautiful answer. I want to thank you very much for your time and for being a guest on the Fueling Curiosity podcast. I look forward to seeing what you do in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fueling Curiosity. I hope you learned something new. If you found this episode valuable, consider sharing it with a friend who might also enjoy it. By sharing the episode, you will directly help us grow the audience of this podcast. I appreciate you listening, and I'd love to have you subscribe to the podcast on the platform you're currently using to listen to your favorite podcasts. By subscribing, new episodes will be automatically added to your library, making it easier to listen to the journeys of top performers. If you like the show, I'd be grateful if you could leave us a review. To learn more about the podcast, visit FuelingCuriosity.com. This episode was produced, recorded, and edited by your host, Michael Aldo. Thank you for your time and interest, and don't forget to stay curious.